This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, voters in Venezuela will be making some big decisions as controversial President Hugo Chavez stands for re-election. We'll have two contrasting views of Chavez and the elections as we focus most of our program on Venezuela. But first, Kurt Devine is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos publicly appeared in good condition after undergoing prostate surgery shortly after announcing his illness to the media. Santos said he was recovering well, working from his hospital room, and will not need chemotherapy. The announcement of cancer came at a critical time in Santos' presidency, as he is preparing to start peace talks with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a Marxist rebel group. Juan Carlos Hidalgo at the Cato Institute says the health of both Santos and his vice president, Angelina Garzón, could be a concern. And the question is what will happen in case of if both Santos and and Garzón, the vice president, are incapacitated, at least temporarily. And apparently there is a minister that will take over. Garzón suffered a stroke this past summer. We'll hear more from Hidalgo about the Colombian peace negotiations next week on this program. The American government contractor Alan Gross, jailed in Cuba for state crimes, may have an untreated cancerous tumor. That news coming this week from his wife and attorney. Gross's lawyer said the unidentified mass behind his right shoulder could be life-threatening. A Cuban court sentenced Gross to 15 years in prison last year on espionage charges. Gross said he was bringing satellite phones and computer equipment to Cuba's Jewish community. While working for the U.S. Agency for International Development, Gross is 63 years old. Last month, Cuban officials said they're willing to negotiate releasing Gross in exchange for five Cuban spies, four of whom remain in U.S. prisons. Cuban officials reject the claims that Gross is in ill health. Two U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents were shot on patrol by criminals near the border town of Naco, Arizona, known as a popular checkpoint for smugglers. Agent Nicholas Ivey died at the scene, and another agent survived after being airlifted to a hospital. A third agent was not injured. Mexican troops arrested two men suspected of involvement in the killings while responding to a tripped ground sensor in the city of Agua Prieta in northern Mexico. Venezuelan protesters killed a supporter of Enrique Capriles Rondoski, the candidate opposing President Hugo Chavez in this weekend's election. The slain supporter, Jason Bolero, had taken a break from his trucking job to work full-time on the opposing candidate's campaign. He was shot at a road blocked by supporters of President Chavez, who were protesting against the Capriles campaign. Bolero's death marks the second murder of one of Capriles' supporters, igniting more national tension in the already heated campaign. President Chavez called the violence a confrontation, but opposition supporters call it a blatant attack. We'll have more about the Venezuelan elections coming up next. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. We begin our special focus on Venezuela with Carlos Laria of the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ. That organization released a report on the Chavez government and Venezuela last month. Laria talked to us from his organization's offices in New York City via Skype. Our conclusion is that, you know, while um, the administration of President Chavez uh, transformed almost every aspect of uh, Venezuela's political culture, um, it was indeed uh, the media 
that perhaps suffer the the um, largest transformation and uh, it is clear that uh, you know after the use of an array of uh, legislation uh, the use of uh, regulatory measures threats uh, campaigns of harassment uh, the independent press uh, in Venezuela the private press uh, has really taken a hit and has uh, uh, and is now uh, uh, debilitated uh, at the same time uh, after uh, the uh, failed attempt coup of April of 2002 uh, the administration of President Chavez realized that uh, in order to challenge the influence of private media at that time, uh, dominant media, especially in the audiovisual uh, broadcast um, sector, um, the administration needed um, to heavily invest on state media. And that was the goal, to build uh, state media apparatus that will challenge the influence of private media and they have done so very successfully um, but the, the result is that this uh, network of, um, of um, uh, state uh, uh, broadcasters uh, print media and, and also uh, digital outlets are used mainly to broadcast propaganda and also as a platform to uh, launch attacks and promote investigations uh, on uh, members of the opposition and, and, and journalists that uh, oppose the views of, of the administration. Let's go back to the 2002 coup, because you brought that up. Many people linked various media outlets, particularly very powerful television networks, with helping to plot that particular coup. Is this not just a natural reaction against private media that may have uh, gone beyond the ethical bounds. Right. Well, uh, you know, that that's, uh, uh, has been uh, widely documented uh, in terms of what was the role of the media uh, during that period, right? And, uh, you know, there's evidence that uh, shows that uh, while... Uh, people in the streets were calling uh, for Chavez to be uh, uh, back in power in April of 2002, you know, massive demonstrations. Uh, the main uh, uh, television stations were broadcasting cartoons. I think that the... That the um, uh, um, the lack of credibility of political uh, parties, and this is a phenomenon that not only took place in Venezuela but in, in many other Latin American countries, uh, produced a vacuum, uh, a vacuum that uh, in Venezuela was filled uh, by, um, you know, by the... Um, media, uh, main, the main broadcasters and mainly uh, uh, mostly were uh, decisions taken by the media owners at that time, right, that decided to uh, uh, jump into the political uh, arena and, uh, you know, promote, promoting the, uh, the agenda of the opposition. I mean, but, but you know, uh, it was 
clear that since then the government has reacted with a spirit of revenge. And, uh, and you know, and since then uh, there is a decision uh, from the, you know, from the uh, president down uh, to, you know, to control the flow of information to uh, um, minimize the influence of, of the press and, uh, and stifle, repress um, a critical coverage. We still, and, uh, we still yeah. see that we have these large networks like Venevision and, right. and powerful newspapers like Tal Qual um, sometimes taking positions against the government. And I suppose the, the more important uh, television network would be the all-news information Globovision in, in Venezuela. Are they not enough of a balance to this, what you characterize as propaganda? I mean, the, uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you see how the networks, uh, you know, what's the ne- network coverage uh, uh, now, I mean, the only critical broadcaster, really critical broadcaster re- uh, that remains is Globovision. And you have to understand, uh, Rick, that Globovision uh, only broadcasts uh, to a small portion of the population, only broadcasts uh, to Caracas and the state of Carabobo uh, um, on the air. I mean, then it goes to uh, cable and and uh, and satellite uh, the rest of the country. But you know that's that's limited in Venezuela in terms of reach. I mean, since since the um, uh, the passage of the law on social responsibility in radio and television called the content law by uh, journalists in Venezuela in 2005, uh, many most of the um, of the networks that were critical of the government uh, needed to cut their most critical talk shows, uh, the most controversial shows, in order to comply with the law. A law that, according to international uh, human rights organizations and uh, uh, even the Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression of the OES, uh, violated uh, inter-American standards uh, in terms of of, uh, freedom of expression. So, you know, um, RCTV... Uh, the main critical uh, uh, outlet network, right, broadcaster, uh, you know, continued to do criticism despite the, the law. And, uh, you know, in 2007 was uh, taken off the air. A uh, decision uh, by the government not to renew its license was, you know, the beginning of, uh, you know, of a situation where dozens of radio stations uh uh, also private, also critical, were also taking off the air. You know, the case of RCTV was vastly uh, and widely documented. It was a decision taken by uh, the government uh, in order to um, take off the air the main uh, opposition channel, the main critical channel that broadcast uh, uh, across the country. Uh, had been in the air for more than 50 years. And uh, it was clearly a decision uh, where the government said 
repeated before the decision was taken that uh, RCTV had violated the Constitution, the telecommunications law, the law on social responsibility in radio and television, that it broadcast uh, propaganda, um, it broadcast uh, pornography, uh, but there was no clear, transparent, impartial process where RCTV would be able to defend its case in a neutral venue. Uh, so uh, there was no judicial sentence against RCTV. Are, are people being deprived of information that is uh, important? Of course. And I think that's, that's one of the things that we uh, believe uh, you know, are, are critical for, uh, for Venezuelans in the, in the weeks that lead up to the, uh, to the, uh, elections. And, um, Rick, it's important also to, uh, um, to note that, uh, you know, there, there's been a, a, a grave crisis in the prison system with dozens of, of people dead. The, um, undermining of the institutions of democracy in Venezuela, right? With, um, you know, the erosion of the division of powers, you know, the uh, well-documented uh, interference of the executive in the, in the judiciary uh, is clearly undermining, uh, you know, this uh, situation. And, I mean, the, 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 the failure of uh, the Chavez administration to support independent institution has the potential to undermine the legitimacy of the, the elections. But I think that the main conclusion of, of this report is whoever wins the next election, rolling back a decade of media repression and, uh, and fostering a climate of dialogue and tolerance where the press can uh, do its work without uh, pressure, intimidation, and government interference is one of the key challenges for uh, the next administration. Well, thank you, Carlos Laria of the Committee to Protect Journalists, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Rick, uh, uh, for having me. And now an addendum to our interview. We should also note that the Venezuelan government fined the critical television network Globovision more than $2 million this summer, Free speech advocates condemn the fine as chilling the atmosphere for criticism leading up to the elections. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. President Chavez squares off against his leading opponent, Enrique Capriles Radonsky, at the polls this weekend. We discussed elections in Venezuela with Alex Maine of the Center for Economic and Policy Research just before he traveled to Caracas to observe the voting. In the past 14 years that the Chavez government has been in charge. Some would say there have been more elections or plebiscites, more chances for people to go to the polls in Venezuela than just about any country in Latin America. Well, yes. Uh, some people think it's even a bit excessive. Uh, there's been a national election nearly every year 
uh, between the legislative elections, uh, the regional and municipal elections, and then uh, various referendums on, uh, on e that have had to do with uh, changing the constitution in Venezuela and the renewal, um, the indefinite renewal of the presidential mandate. Uh, there have been elections uh, nearly every year. And uh, what's really quite amazing is that uh, people in Venezuela don't seem to grow tired of them, and participation is, has remained very high in these elections. These elections don't seem to be very close. Latest polls have President Chavez up by more than 10 points, although polling in Venezuela by itself is a fairly controversial subject. Anything to say about this race in particular or about the polls? Well, I, I think what we can say is that this is probably a, a closer race and we'll probably see closer results, um, a tighter race than uh, was the case uh, in the previous presidential elections um, uh, in which uh, President Chavez was pitted against uh, Manuel Rosales, the former governor of Zulia. Uh, there was a very, very wide spread between the two candidates then. And here it seems that um, partly through uh, a very well-organized uh, opposition campaign, I think probably a very effective opposition campaign, uh, there's uh, likely to be a more important mobilization uh, in favor of uh, the opposition candidate, Enrique Capriles. Um, and so we can expect a tighter race. Uh, there are very few polls, and the polling, you, you know, as you suggested, has been a little bit all over the place, but there are very few that suggest that Enrique Capriles could win. Uh, there's one in particular, Consultores uh, 21, Consultores uh, 21, that has um, predicted that he will win. Um, however, nearly all the other polls predict um, uh, Chavez win, and some of them predict uh, a win with a very, very large margin of 10 points or more. Aren't the polls suspect in, in Venezuela? Aren't they more polarized and partisan than we see in other countries? Well, uh, yes, I, I think so. I, I mean, we do see pol polarized, uh, certainly partisan polling, I think, all over Latin America. I don't think uh, Venezuela is atypical uh, in that regard. Um, you know, there have been a number of studies uh, done on the, the polling this time around where uh, Individual pollsters, uh, based on their track record in the past, uh, have had uh, sort of ponderated biases. That's, and so their uh, forecasts have been adjusted. And, um, you know, when this has been done, uh, it still shows a, a pretty probable um, win for President Chavez. Caprilius has seemed to have latched on lately to this idea of following more of a Brazilian model of being a progressive leftist. That sort of rhetoric seems to have entered the campaign fairly late. Is there really any philosophical or content to this election, or is this merely a, a referendum on, on Chavez and, and his administration of the country? You know, I think more than anything, this is a referendum on Chavez. That's certainly been the case of many of the previous elections. Uh, the opposition candidate and the, the sort of united opposition, they've come up with a common agenda. And what's interesting uh, to see is that um, uh, their public agenda, certainly, 
uh, indicates that they would preserve a lot of the, the policies uh, that President Chavez has implemented, in particular the social missions. So they merely speak of rendering these missions more efficient. But it's a big change from the discourse of a number of years ago when uh, they spoke of doing away with these missions uh, altogether. But uh, there's been a lot of talk of uh, a sort of a clandestine program uh, from the opposition. In fact, there was a document that was leaked that uh, caused quite a bit of controversy within the ranks of the opposition itself. Uh, this document, and it's not possible at this point to, authentic, uh, to, to gauge whether it's authentic. Um, however, um, it uh, calls for the privatization, essentially, of a lot of the missions and of um, various uh, social uh, policies, including uh, the social security system and so on. Um, and and also uh, a, a big turnaround in the running of uh, the oil company of Venezuela. And uh, this is something that seems to be very much rejected by most of the population. And uh, when rumors came out that this was, in fact, the clandestine program of the opposition, there are a few um, prominent members of the opposition that broke ranks. And this happened just a few years ago, just a few weeks ago. Let's talk a little bit more about this, because President Chavez doesn't buy this new left image that Capriles is trying to sell to the electorate and has pointed out that he comes from uh, a rich family, that, that he will really represent the old elites and oligarchy of Venezuela. Well, certainly, and he does come from uh, a very rich family, um, contrary to Lula, and, and he has mentioned Lula as a model. Lula, of course, came from a very, very poor family in Brazil. Um, never got a high school education uh, and was a worker in a factory uh, and then a union leader before becoming uh, president. Um, so uh, very different trajectories. Uh, Enrique Capriles um, uh, certainly was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Um, he, he went to Harvard in the United States uh, and uh, was um, one of the founders of a party called Primero Justicia in the late 90s, uh, a party that uh, came, uh, that emerged in the sort of upper-class neighborhoods of Caracas, and uh, their first victories were in those neighborhoods, in those municipalities, particularly the, the municipalities of uh, Chacao and Baruta in eastern Caracas. And uh, certainly their base for quite a long time um, consisted of uh, wealthy uh, members of the elite within Caracas. They didn't even have really a regional base. And then they began to expand in the last few years. But there's a lot of questioning of, you know, really their sincerity when uh, they talk of, uh, when they have a program that, you know, basically replicates uh, that of Chavez in many points. And, uh, you know, the other worrying factor is that uh, none of the main leaders of the um, opposition, including Enrique Capriles uh, himself, have uh, said clearly that they will respect the results of the elections, even if uh, it is uh, their defeat. Um, so these are some worrying signs that they may be preparing uh, to not recognize uh, the elections. And it'll be interesting to see if that is the case, uh, whether they have, uh, you know, support um, really within the country uh, within the country's military, for instance, and uh, internationally as well. And it'll be interesting to see how the United States government reacts. 
What's your prediction in that regard if President Chavez wins yet another re-election? Well, you know, my prediction at this point, um, my impression is that uh, President Obama at this point in his campaign uh, certainly doesn't want to deal with a foreign policy crisis. Um, that's the sort of thing that you really try to avoid in the last few weeks uh, uh, of a campaign like this. Uh, and um, because of that, I think it's fairly unlikely uh, that um, his administration would rec- would um, support the opposition if they were to um, reject uh, the results of the election. Uh, I think that's that's really quite unlikely at this point. But, uh, you know, you never know, really. There's certainly sectors within the United States government, within the U.S. State Department and so on, that are that remain very very hostile uh, to uh, the current Venezuelan government, and that I think you know would push for supporting the opposition uh, no matter what. So that's something to be on the lookout for. Alex Main of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, thank you for joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. And now. Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. For several years now, Mexico has been going through a rough period. Since President Felipe Calderon took office in 2006, more than 60,000 Mexicans have been killed in the drug-fueled violence that has engulfed many parts of the country. Mexico's oil production which finances more than 30% of the national budget, is slumping. And in 2009, the economy contracted by some 6.5%. No other country in Latin America suffered a bigger blow from the global financial crisis. But as Mexico approaches the December 1st inauguration of newly elected President Enrique Peña Nieto, things are looking up. One reason is the economy, which has been growing at a healthy 4.5% pace for nearly three years. But there's also a strong sense of optimism that the new government will succeed in introducing reforms needed to achieve steady economic and social advance. Sure, that may simply be the hope that is often placed in new leadership. A new broom is expected to sweep cleaner. But Mexicans also have tangible grounds for their optimism, even if it should be accompanied by a measure of skepticism. First of all, there is relatively broad agreement on what the priorities of the soon-to-be-installed government should be. The agenda includes updating labor legislation, which is already near approval, revamping the nation's energy policies and freeing its national oil company from many suffocating constraints, and reshaping the country's tax and spending policies. In addition, the new president has to get control of the rampant crime and bloodletting and initiate a serious assault on pervasive corruption. A second reason for optimism is that this agenda for reform is supported by the two largest parties in the legislature, Together, they have a significant congressional majority and now appear as likely allies for the coming year. They may even be able to draw sufficient votes from smaller parties to enact some desirable constitutional changes. Third, 
New President Peña Nieto is regarded as an exceptionally talented politician, not a visionary, but rather a pragmatic leader who knows what can and cannot get done, and he has the skills to keep his own party in line and build coalitions with others and also make the necessary trade-offs. There is one area, improved security and safety, in which optimism appears less warranted. Mexican expectations for improvement seem largely based on the belief that the situation is so bad today that it has to get better. But no one seems really to have a strategy to produce any better results. Still, all said, there are reasons to be upbeat about Mexico. The most important is that Mexicans seem to agree more than they disagree on what needs to get done. That is a big difference from the United States. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to react to Latin American perspectives or any portion of this program, you may write us. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Or you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team. Associate producer Kurt Devine, announcer Victor Kilo, and writer Colin Campbell. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.